Maria, welcome to First Up. It is Ra Pare. That is Thursday. It's Thursday already. Wow. Uh, the 7th of July. Call Nathan Rarere. Aho coming up. We find out if Boris Johnson is still there or gone or not, or is he clinging like a limpet to a political rock? COVID cases soar across the Tasman, and Australia is weighing up a fourth jab for their entire population. We speak to Deputy Prime Minister Grant Robertson about his recovery from COVID, the prospect of tighter COVID restrictions, and the impact on schools and businesses as winter bugs hit hard. And a woman who runs a reproductive rights organisation in the United States vows to keep helping people access abortion services despite the overturning of Roe v. Wade. Welcome to First Up. Woof, plenty going on in the UK uh, as we speak, actually. Prime Minister Boris Johnson, he's vowed that he's going to continue as the Prime Minister despite incredible pressure for him to resign. I think he's been spoken to by even some of his party members at the moment. And joining us amongst it all from London is our correspondent, Ali J. Morena, Ali. Morena, Nate, how are you? I'm good. I'm, I'm doing better than Boris is at the moment anyway. I mean, he, didn't he just survive um, a leadership contest? How, how did we arrive at this latest uh, crisis for him? I think you're right there. I think a lot of people are doing better than the UK Prime Minister at the moment. And it really is a breaking news situation. So there's there's a buzz here in the UK. Everybody's talking about it. I've got one eye on the news as well, just in case um, somebody else quits. But first off, I'll give you a bit of a, a recap, a bit of a um, yeah. background to what's happening. So the Prime Minister has been under scrutiny in the past couple of days, in the past week, and it's all about his appointment of Chris Pincher to Deputy Chief Whip. This was controversial because it turns out he's under investigation for a series of alleged incidents of inappropriate behaviour and that the uh, Boris Johnson said he didn't know about these allegations and he didn't know about uh, further allegations from 2019. That was all until yesterday afternoon when the news came out that he did know and he had known about it when he appointed him to this job. So cue Johnson calling a press briefing, uh, answering questions about when he had known and also saying uh, he said he forgot that he knew. He said oh. he made a mistake in, in promoting him uh, when he knew about the allegations and, and he'd forgotten about this. So he the problem was for days he's been assuring cabinet members he knew nothing. People had been going on and doing um, TV interviews, radio interviews and saying, I have confidence in the PM. He's told me he didn't know. But minutes after this interview uh, yesterday where he said he did, the Chancellor Rishi Sunak sent his letter of resignation. Uh, he said the public rightly expect government to be conducted properly, competently and seriously. Uh, and he said, I believe these standards are worth fighting for, so I'm resigning. Just a few minutes after that, the health secretary, Sajid Javid, resigned. He said he'd lost confidence in the PM and that he can no longer in good conscience continue serving this government. Um, so they say it wasn't it wasn't planned, but um, I was hearing this morning that aides have said as well that they had previously discussed the situation, but they didn't time it exactly. And after that, people started going left, right and centre. I wrote when I was starting to... Um, 
think about what we would talk about today. That was only a couple of hours ago. I've got in 27 have resigned. That total is now up to 36. Wow. Uh, and they're saying one in five MPs with government jobs have gone since yesterday. I think that's gone up as well. There was um, Prime Minister's questions today. Sajid Javid delivered his resignation speech. He basically said that he couldn't he couldn't keep his integrity and stay in the government. He said that the government's problems, these scandals, they start at the top. And he's concluded that um, you can't keep pressing the reset button, is what he said, and expect things to change. Mm. And this is not going to change. So just recently, and what I'm keeping an eye on at the moment, a group of cabinet members have gone into number 10, They're or keep going into number 10. And uh, they're reportedly telling the PM to resign. So this includes some quite big hitters. The business secretary, Kwasi Kwarteng, has been seen going in. Um, Grant Shapps, who's the transport secretary. Uh, and interestingly enough as well, we're hearing reports that Nadim Zahawi is going to tell him to go. Uh, this is the guy who just last night has accepted the post of chancellor. So he's he said, and yes, I'll take this job. And El- now he's going in and saying that too. So, Ellie, um, you know, like these people now, right, that, so they've all decided that yesterday was the bit where all of a sudden there was, oh, gosh, no, no, we can't follow this guy. Despite the fact they've been on, on all the meetings and all every decision, right, he often gets pushed out the front to be the decision maker. But there was a video that I saw online where he was talking to his cabinet and no one wanted to make eye contact with him. Um, I think Michael Gove was was the only one who, who was, but he was drumming his lips very nervously as he looked across the table. Um, So when you say that even Michael Gove has said that perhaps it's time to go, surely that's the last guy that would be there, right? Would he be one of the strongest Boris Johnson loyalists? You, I mean, you would think so. But a couple of years ago, when there was the time that Boris Johnson became leader of the Conservative Party, Michael Gove did also go for that job. So he he hasn't always been 100% um, pro-Boris. But I think that's the thing that's coming up a lot when people are saying, um, why 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 now? Why is this the scandal that's done it? I mean, um, Sajid Javid in this speech in the um, House of Commons was saying, oh, you know, when we heard about the um, Sue Gray report that came out, when we were talking about parties in lockdown, all of those kind of things, I thought maybe maybe he can carry on. Maybe he's assured me that um, this isn't going to continue and he's apologised. But now this is the limit. So a lot of people are kind of saying, um, why has it why has it taken this long almost? But I mean, it's expected. Um, it, people also are saying Boris Johnson has this ability to just cling on, to continuously cling on. So something I was hearing um, from analysts this morning was that um, they expect that you'll see the claw marks on the walls of number 10 when he finally does go, if this is the time he finally does go. Um, but I mean, the next couple of hours, it feels like the next couple of hours will be crucial. Yeah, he's, he's like a power. You've really got to get off there with that. Then I have to get him off the rock. So there's a thing going on called the, the Liaison Committee. Um, I ju- just wanted to know, I, I know he spent the last few hours being grilled by MPs. Can you, can you just tell us what is the Liaison Committee? So this, the Liaison Committee is all to do with looking into um, government 
government standards and uh, also a bit about what's been happening over the past couple of weeks and how the government is is functioning. So he's been there. I mean, he's had quite a full on day. He had to go into prime minister's questions. And then at four o'clock, he's gone into this um, liaison committee where they actually they did ask him uh, in there. They asked him if he was having a good week. And he said, oh, absolutely. Terrific. Great week. Um, And they also asked him if he would be minister tomorrow, to which he said, um, yes, I will be. Um, being asked as well to Keir Starmer, the leader of the Labour Party in the House of Commons earlier today, and yesterday was calling for a snap election and saying, this is what we need now. The whole, the, the fish rots from the head. The whole party needs to go, basically. Um, and Boris Johnson has said, he's insisted he sees no reason to call an election. The next one, earliest date he could see would be two years from now. So I think looking to see what will happen um, when these MPs come out. And there's a, I mean, there's a huge number of press and live reporters from the door of number 10 waiting almost to see that podium come out and see if it does, see if he does address this. Has anyone been spoken about as uh, this sounds like the person who will take over from Boris Johnson or, you know, this person's doing the numbers to find out if they have enough support? Not at the moment, really, for that. And I think because just a couple of weeks ago, we had, even it feels like years ago now, we had that um, vote of no confidence. And they're saying as well, I mean, the 1922 committee, which is that group of um, Tory backbenchers who um, say whether or not you can have a leadership contest, they've said there can't be another one for a year, but their leadership is going to change next week. So it's thought that it might even be next week, if he doesn't go, that there could be another vote of no confidence. And then I think we'll start to see um, people sort of edging in and, and choosing their positions for whether or not they want to go for that job. He, You won't be surprised to hear that he does still have support from sort of you would say the classics, the the inner circle, uh, Dominic Raab, Nadine Dorries, um, Jacob Rees-Mogg as well. They're still saying um, he can do this. We support him. He's got the, the, the top decisions over the past few years right on all of them, that kind of thing. So we're not at the moment seeing anyone stick their neck out and say, I'm, I'm going to go for this. But I think the next couple of days we will start to see that. Okay, Ellie, thank you very much for your time. Ellie J there in London. Ellie, stand by your phone just in case uh, something happens instantly because we'll uh, give you a call. Uh, That's uh, Ellie J in London. It's a quarter past five. You're listening to First Up here at RNZ National with me, Nathan Raddady. Just keen for your feedback on that uh, in particular. Favourite Boris Johnson memory? Have you got one there? Uh, 2101 or first up at rnz.co.nz. Let's jump across to mainland Europe now where the Eiffel Tower is apparently rusting and the king of cocaine has arrived in Italy to face charges after decades on the run. To tell us about all of that in Sweden is Dr Anita Purcell-Sherland. Kia ora Anita, how are you? Kia ora, fine, thank you. Now, if there's a cocaine king arriving, uh, the name Rocco Morabito, that sounds very much like a Hollywood name, but this is a real person, right? How long has he been, has he been a wanted man? 
Well, he's Italy's number two most wanted mobster, and he arrived in Rome after being extradited from Brazil, where he'd been hiding, ending a manhunt of 28 years. Now, he's known as the cocaine king of Milan. Morabito was arrested in May last year in a joint operation by Brazilian and Italian police. Now, 55-year-old Morabito will serve a 30-year prison sentence for drug trafficking. Rocco Morabito became a key figure in the Indrangheta, which is a criminal network controlling much of the cocaine trafficking in Italy and beyond. Ah, um, You know, uh, mass shootings obviously all around the United States there, July the 4th, were horrible. Then, of course, there was the one in Copenhagen before that. And you're beginning to find out more about the mass shooter. What's the latest? Well, the 22-year-old Danish um, perpetrator tried to seek psychiatric help hours before he went on the shooting spree. He's well known to mental health services, and according to Danish radio, the 22-year-old rang a crisis helpline for acute psychiatric needs, but that service was closed on that Sunday. And later that day, he went on a gun attack, which killed three people and injured at least four. Meanwhile, yesterday, thousands of people gathered outside the gallery where the shooting took place to honour the victims, Prime Minister Mette Frederiksen, Copenhagen's mayor and members of the Danish royal family um, attended the vigil. Um, Let's go to France. And this is a a landmark that so many people have there. But I understand the Eiffel Tower wouldn't pass a warrant if it was an old car. What's wrong with it? Yeah, that's right. Confidential reports cited by a French magazine say the iconic tower is riddled with rust. Now, French magazine Marianne cited confidential reports by experts which claim that the Eiffel Tower is in a poor state and is in need of full repairs. However, the Eiffel Tower is given a cosmetic 60 million euro paint job ahead of the 2024 Olympic Games. Now, the wrought iron 324 metre high tower welcomes about 6 million visitors each year. And according to Marianne magazine, the company overseeing the tower is reluctant to close it for a long time because of the tourist revenue that would be lost. Not the tourists that would be lost if something went wrong with it. Okay, um, let's. Um, this is interesting. If we have a look at Ukraine and the war over there, Latvia is um, responding to the war by reinstating compulsory military service. So, is this a sign that Europe's preparing for for a widening of this war in Ukraine? Well, last month, former Russian Prime Minister and Putin critic Mikhail Kazyanov told Agence France Press that if Ukraine falls, Putin will target the Baltic states of Estonia, Latvia and Lithuania. So Latvia is preparing by reinstating compulsory military service. Latvia has a population of around 2 million people and it borders Belarus and Russia. And at present, Latvia has 7,500 active duty soldiers and National Guard members and hosts 1,500 NATO troops. So it wants to obviously strengthen its military service. Yeah. And and finally, let's talk about Macedonia, protests about ethnic rights, and that's seen a number of police officers injured. Yeah, in the capital of Skopje, at least 47 police officers were injured during protests on Wednesday against government's concessions to Bulgaria on ethnic rights as part of EU accession talks. Now, led by the Nationalist Opposition Party, demonstrators threw rocks, fireworks, petrol bombs and other objects at police. EU member Bulgaria has been blocking the start of accession talks with North Macedonia for more than two years. And Bulgaria is demanding that over 3,000 Bulgarians living in North Macedonia be mentioned in the Macedonian constitution in order to guarantee the equal rights. Now, North Macedonian Prime Minister Dimitar Kovacheski told EU President Charles Michel on Tuesday that his country can live with the concessions to Bulgaria. 
Dr Anita Purcell-Sherland out of Sweden, thank you very much for your time. In Australia, a technical group on immunisation has met to discuss whether the general population needs a fourth dose of the COVID vaccine. The extra vaccine is currently available to anyone aged over 65, the immunocompromised, those living with a disability and Indigenous Australians aged over 50. Like here, COVID cases are soaring across Australia. The ABC's Angus Randall reports on whether vaccine eligibility should be extended to all. A boost to my confidence. Boost my fitness. A boost to our social life. This year, the government's vaccine message has been all about boosters, and most of us seem to have listened. More than two-thirds of adults across the country have had three shots of a COVID vaccine. But those who booked their booster early are coming up on six months since their last vaccine, and calls for a fourth dose are getting louder. Australia's Independent Expert Advisory Group on Vaccines, ATAGI, is meeting today to discuss the expansion of a fourth dose. Prime Minister Anthony Albanese says it's inevitable. My view is that uh, we will inevitably uh, follow... Uh, what has occurred in, in other parts of the world and, and rolled out a further booster shot. Israel has been offering a fourth vaccine to healthcare workers, people over 60 and those at high risk. It's a similar story in Australia. Anyone over 65 or at high risk can book a fourth dose. Dr Chris Moy is the vice president of the Australian Medical Association. He says Israel's fourth dose program showed there was a benefit for those at higher risk, but for everyone else, the effects were minimal. In terms of Omicron, one of the big problems is that it's so infectious. What they found that giving a fourth shot only produces a transient, in a healthy person, a transient reduction in just the risk of getting an infection. And it wasn't really a great benefit. He's also concerned about the risks of immunological imprinting, or the more biblical term, original antigenic sin. If you keep on giving a vaccine against a specific variant repeatedly, what can happen, especially if you give it very quickly, what can happen over time is that your immune system can get a little bit lazy and if it faces a new variant, just produce a response against the original variant rather than sort of stepping up and, and responding to new variants. Dr Chris Moy says Atagi will be worried about launching a booster rollout too early and then having to respond on the fly if a new variant came along. There has been a lot of pressure to widen the fourth shot eligibility to everybody even over the last few months, but had they done that, they would have given a fourth shot with only a transient potential benefit. But then what would they have done if they faced a new threat? Recommend a fifth shot with no current evidence across the world for a fifth shot. Several states are pushing a target to make a fourth dose accessible for everyone as they face rising COVID case numbers. South Australia's Health Minister Chris Picton is dealing with around 3,000 new cases a day. And I think that there's a lot of people in the community who would jump at the chance to get a fourth dose uh, if that was available to them. And New South Wales Health Minister Brad Hazard wants action fast. His state has nearly 125,000 active cases. My view is as Health Minister in New South Wales that we need to broaden it and we need to move quickly because um, basically there's a simple rule in this, every extra dose helps. So let's get a fourth dose if we can do it. Meanwhile, Victorian Premier Daniel Andrews says healthcare workers should be the next group added to the booster list. Pressure in our health system at the moment is acute. Principally, the fact that so many staff, literally thousands of staff in any given week, can't report for work. 
and that means that the load has to be shared amongst those who can report and that limits our overall capacity. But Dr Chris Moy says states should focus on their third shot before pushing for a fourth. The real things we need to focus on at the moment is making sure that we get our overall booster level rate up because across Australia the booster rate is running at about 70% of those who are eligible. And what we know from a recent study is that the booster increases your protection against Omicron by at least 65% and even more in those over the age of 70. That's Chris Moy, Vice President of the Australian Medical Association, ending that report from the ABC's Angus Randall. Like sands through the hourglass, so are the days of our lives. This is the day of our life. We like to call the 7th of July. It's a happy 41st birthday to Mahendra Singh Dhoni. He raises the, the bat to the boundary. MS Dhoni is 41. He's exactly half the age today of Sir Richard Starkey, MBE. Yes, Thomas the Tank Engine. Ringo Starr turns 82 years old today. Uh, on this day in 1916, the New Zealand Labour Party was founded in Wellington. On this day in 1978, the Solomon Islands said Tara to the UK and became independent. And also on this day in 1990, uh, what would become the world's best-selling classical record was recorded. It was the first three tenors concert um, with uh, Domingo Carreras and Pavarotti. Uh, this day in 2005 was uh, a horrible day in London. Coordinated terrorist uh, bla- bomb blasts strike London's public transport system. Uh, during the morning rush, it killed 52, injured 700. And uh, this is the, uh, the day that in 1930, uh, Sir Arthur Conan Doyle died. He was a physician, he was the author and also creator of Sherlock Holmes. Did some interesting look into his life. So he was a huge believer in spiritualism. He believed that fairies were real, that they existed, and it put him at odds with his great mate, Harry Houdini, and uh, Houdini debunks his debunking of mediums and psychics, including uh, Doyle's wife, ended their friendship. And the other amazing bit of trivia about um, Sir Arthur Conan Doyle, he was a judge in the world's first bodybuilding contest in 1901. And that's the day of our life that we call the 7th of July. The best things in life are free. Can give them to the birds and bees. I want money. Joining us now from the business team is Nicholas Poynton. Kia sir, how are you? I'm very well, thank you. Having a better day than Boris, it seems. Yeah, yeah, it seems like it, doesn't it? That can be a catchphrase for most people, you know. He seems to me like the drunk guy at the party and he needs one of his mates to go, come on, mate, come on, <laughs> yeah. come on, we'll get in the taxi. That's the benchmark for come how you're on. doing. Are you doing better than Boris today? Yeah, yeah, are you doing? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Two what I won. Are you doing better than Boris Johnson today? Um, many things to have a look at. Um, what about the small grocery Retailers wanting the government to go further with supermarket sector reforms. What, Look, what is this? This is following on from the announcement that there's going to be a supermarket commissioner. That was announced yesterday. Essentially, the way that the minister described it was they're going to be the referee of the supermarkets and they're going to be officiating to ensure that uh, customers are getting the best deal at the checkout, that, that there is competition in the marketplace. And broadly speaking, you know, speaking to some players in the supermarket sector, they support these measures. There's nothing. There's no one out there saying that this is a bad thing. Mm. But you know, speaking to some of the smaller people at the margins, like the the, the owner of the, the the chief executive that is of the night and day uh, little grocery corner shop chain, they say they're sort of saying that it's not necessarily going to make prices cheaper anytime soon. 
is a broader structural thing to have someone who's at the top there making sure that competition is taking place, there aren't any dodgy practices, that's a good thing, but you know, he wants the supermarket to go further and that and he's talking about a structural separation of the supermarkets because they do have a sizable chunk of the market compared with each other. They are able to control it and they want to see something like not necessarily the separation between the wholesale parts of supermarkets and the retails and the retail uh, suppliers. Kind of think about it like the, what we see in the power sector, where well, I guess um, there are people in the electricity sector who says that we need a structural separation there. But you have the wholesalers who are maybe you know procuring the items, and then maybe if they were separated from the retailers, that would enable more competition, more small players to come into the market. Right. Dairy's been able to compete with your with your big retail supermarket. So. Look, the, the, there's, there's still evidence to suggest that this the government still has further measures to announce in this department. But, um, you know, I think this has been taken you know, positively by the sector, but there is still room for improvement, some will say. OK. Uh, what do you got on business wellbeing? Yeah, well, we did get some wellbeing figures from StatsNZ yesterday about how the country's feeling. But with regard to businesses, it has fallen slightly on a year ago. Interestingly, um, I know we're probably pressed for time, but... Government and healthcare sectors were were recording the highest level of burnout. If you think about frontline health workers, oh, what they've that. been through, yeah, teachers, uh, yeah. I, or you know, teachers, you could technically say are government workers in some respects. But yes. you know, those those people who are at the front line of the pandemic completely makes sense. You would only hope that that improves in the, uh, in, the, uh, in the year ahead. But look, given where we're seeing COVID cases at the moment, with these stories about supermarkets being overrun with pe- sick people, it seems like those people are absolutely under the pump at the moment. And you'd like to see, hope some way, somehow, that the pressure on them begins to ease. Yeah. Nicholas, thank you very much for your time. Sir Nicholas Poynton uh, and the business team will be on Morning Report this morning at 10.27. Let's go to the money markets now. This is what your New Zealand dollar can buy you. 61.34 US cents, 90.59 Australian cents, 60.33 Euro cents, 51.53 British pence, 4.12 yuan, 83.29 Japanese yen, 38.73 Russian rubles and 22.15 Thai baht. Well, in the United States, supporters of reproductive rights are mobilising en masse to fight back against the Supreme Court's ruling that abortion is not a constitutional right. As many as 26 states could ultimately criminalise the procedure, with eight having already introduced bans and others following suit in the coming days and weeks. In Mississippi, in less than 12 hours from now, abortion will become a felony crime with women and non-binary people who get the procedure and any physician who performs it, liable to heavy fines and lengthy prison sentences. But Mississippi's pro-choice activists are vowing to keep keep up the fight. One of them is Michelle Kalong, uh, who's the executive director of Sisters, helping every woman rise and organise, or Shiro, uh, which advocates for reproductive rights and helps connect people of colour with abortion services. So I asked her how she and her colleagues reacted when they first heard news of the Supreme Court's decision. It wasn't big of a shock to me. So many of us have been planning for this, but nonetheless, it still, you know, was very disappointing. But it's a wound beyond healing. But it was something that we were anticipating. You know, we've been preparing for this, and it's not going to stop, you know, the organizing and the work that we're doing and that we're going to do. And that is in helping people in Mississippi access the abortion care that they need and they deserve. Yeah, when you said that it wasn't a surprise to you, what were the indicators early on where you thought, I think this is more than just talk, this is actually going to happen? 
Well, you know, that's a good question. And so for me as an activist and an organizer, a lot of my primary focus is on women's rights, right, and women's equality. And so abortion rights is right on up there. And so for me, you know, this stopped being about just closing, the closing down of the Lone Clinic in Mississippi. And when American, when the elections in America in, in the 2016 elections and when Donald Trump was elected president, that's when I knew that this was it. That was pretty much the, the nail in the coffin. And that, that and that's pretty much when I was, like, really preparing. Like, I was getting my mind right, you know, mentally and just, like, having conversations with people, other folks that I knew in movement. So I have to say in November, yeah, November of 2016, after the, elect, the presidential election here in America. Yeah. After this ruling, are there many women <clears throat> now traveling across state lines to, to get the treatment that they need? Well, even before, let me just say this, even before this ruling, people in Mississippi and people in other hostile, uh, abortion hostile states had been already traveling across the state. And so, yeah, I mean, with this ruling, that just makes it even more challenging. You know, more people are traveling and the clinics that are available, you know, this is more work for them. You know, it's an undue burden on them and their providers because not only will they have to service their patients, meaning the patients in their states and in their communities, they have graciously taken on the abortion health care of people coming from Mississippi, Alabama, Tennessee, places in Florida, you know, Louisiana, Texas, and beyond. Wow. I mean, it's hard to know sometimes when I read articles what's real and what isn't. I mean, I've been reading about uh, instances of, of women being forced to give birth to a baby that was never going to survive. Also, a 10-year-old rape victim forced to travel from Ohio to Indiana. Do you hear similar horror stories to that? Not only do I hear them, there are people, like I said, there are people that I know who... Basically, yes, they were, in essence, they were forced to ha- to carry their pregnancy to term, and they were forced to have their baby because of the hostile environment, the current hostile environment. So it's really tragic, you know, and, and it makes, and it really hurts my heart every time I hear about the 10-year-old from Ohio having to, to travel. And, you know, and that's a child, you know, 10 years old, that's a, that's a child, that's a baby, that's a real child. And the fact that, she had to leave her state. And if she were here in Mississippi, <laughs> you know, our, our politicians, our anti-elected officials had no qualms about, you know, and no sympathy for her when they were asked, you know, how do you feel about that? They're right up in your face telling you that their belief is that life begins at, you know, conception or at fertilization. And so that's just, it's very disheartening to know that we have men and women in, in our society in 2022 that don't really care about living, breathing, existing people, right? Mm -hmm. That they put more weight and and would rather have a fetus have more rights than the actual individual. And, you know, again, this is a 10-year-old child, and this is just one of many that we'll never know about. But they value the fetus over her life and over her future, over her well-being, yeah, and so that's just another reason why I still join on, and I will never stop. Uh, I'll never stop organizing and working toward full, unrestricted access to abortion health care. Yeah, Michelle, can you just help us understand here in New Zealand? So, what sort of punishments for a woman who has uh, for a woman who has an abortion in your state exists right now, or for a physician who carries out that treatment d- despite the law? Like, what sort of you know what what will the law do to them? So, 
when the law goes into effect, abortion will be criminalized. So anyone, and this goes to anyone, including a doctor who performs an, what they're calling an illegal abortion, is subjected to, I think it's like, well, it'll be, it's called murder. So you'll be tried for murder. You can get up to 25, I think the minimum is like 25 years jail time. And that does mean the individual, if they have ingested, you know, anything or have done anything, used any instruments or whatever, they will be tried in the court of law. They have committed a crime. That crime is murder. It is, you know, infant, infant side. And uh, they get, yeah, I want to say the, the minimum, I believe, is 25 years or something like that. So that's the way the law is here in Mississippi. Oh, it's awful. Um, and, and then, you, you know, what happens when things like this, you know, we, we see this in, in all sorts of, of laws that happen. Things get pushed to, to black markets or, in this case, probably dangerous, you know, levels here. Do you think that women are or will inevitably end up carrying out dangerous like backroom sort of abortions? I think, so let me just say this. Yeah, I believe that there will be instances where people will take it upon themselves um, because they will be so desperate. I do not think, though, that it will be as bad as it was before Roe. And the reason why I say this is because we have made such advancements in uh, with modern technology. So, you know, hopefully there won't be, I don't think that there'll be as many deaths that we had pre-Roe. But regardless of that, you know, the situation still is dire where, you know, pregnant people and women and girls should not have to result to going to some stranger or doing something in, in some, you know, in some shady room or what have you. This is something that this is health care. You know, abortion is health care. And they should be allowed to go to their doctor's office, to, you know, a clinic, to the hospital. And they should not have to travel across country or travel hours away from home and pay hundreds and hundreds of dollars to get this health care that they need and deserve. With that being said, that's what I do as an activist. That's what my organization does. We want to make sure that we get the information out there to folks that if you find yourself with an unplanned pregnancy or an unwanted pregnancy for whatever reason, because I don't care why you want to get an abortion, that's not my place to ask you or to judge you. But if you find yourself in a situation where you want to terminate your pregnancy, it is my job and my organization's job, and not only our job, but our responsibility to make sure that people know and they can navigate on where to go. If they need to get to a clinic, where is the nearest clinic? You know, um, how do we get them there? Logistics and things like that. And also, you know, having, you know, conversations with people about SMA, which is self-managed abortion, and just helping them. If they do miscarry, miscarry, you know, helping them navigate if they decide to go to the hospital, you know what I'm saying? And, and, and training them and explaining to them, you know, how this is risky in the sense of, of them being criminalized for miscarrying. You know, there's already this like shroud of guilt uh, hovering over them if someone, in, in, you know, a medical staff member, quote unquote, feels in their soul or they think that this person has self-aborted, they're the ones who cause the police. You know what I'm saying? And then if the police come, if law comes, they're the ones who will then again arrest them. And then they have to spend time in jail. And then it would be up to the prosecutor if he or she wants to, you know, continue with the process of prosecuting and charging these people with self-aborting and, and criminalizing them. So 
our job as activists and organizers, if you are someone who is in the pro-abortion movement uh, here in the United States, it is our responsibility and it's our duty to make sure that we are sharing that information, we are having these conversations, that we are organizing in communities. And I'm talking about not just in red states and, 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 and you know, and, and in the South, but everywhere, because this is no longer just a Southern state problem. This is something that has bled now into 26 other states. And so we have half of our country now that is criminalizing abortion. And, you know, Alaska and Hawaii is going to have more abortion access than the majority of the southern states in the United States. And again, you know, it's a tragedy. It's definitely tragic because we don't have these restrictions on any other medical procedure. There is nothing like this on any other. We don't require any of these obstacles on any other health issue. Nothing, nothing. Mm-hmm. And, and again, it, and it's really, it, it, it's tragic. It's sad. It's, it's unbelievable, really. The professionals of the RNZ machine, a morning report. Uh, they're here after six and with a quick preview of what is happening. It is Susie Ferguson, who I believe is in the, the, the home studio this morning. Kia ora. Kia ora, I am. It's true. I, I like to call it the Rainbow Studio, but I know that Rainbow doesn't uh, oh. come in on the show live uh, in an act of huge professionalism. She she does indeed um, hold herself to very high professional standards. Um <laughs> Uh, but often comes in for the post-show meeting afterwards, oh, just to good. tell everyone they've done really well. Susie, I, I know you've you've spent many a year uh, reporting on politics. Did you see the video yesterday of Boris Johnson talking to his cabinet and just no one making eye contact with him? <laughs> Boy, <laughs> that was that was a really oh that was a watch. I was going, mate. Only Michael it, Gove is looking at you. It's excruciating, isn't it? Yeah, it yeah. is. It really is. We're going to be talking more about the situation for Boris Johnson. It's becoming more and more precarious, I guess. Political Mm. crisis, really, in the UK shaping up this morning. Pressure growing to a pretty intense level on Boris Johnson to resign. We'll bring you the very latest as that unfolds uh, across the morning. Also, the Muslim community back here is seeking reassurances from police about their safety. This is um, ahead of the festival of Eid in the next few days. We'll be talking to the Federation of Islamic Associations, Anwar Ghani, on the programme after seven about that. Also more on the supermarkets, code of conduct uh, that's been signalled coming up. And the Climate Commissioner calling for farmers to do more to reduce emissions. We will speak to him on the programme as well. It's all coming up after six o'clock on Morning Report. Cool. Thank you very much, Susie Ferguson there, of course, with Corin Dan. Well, with 10,000 new cases reported in New Zealand yesterday, it appears that we're at the start of another wave of COVID-19. I know, it feels like we're in the middle of one, but there's another one coming. Uh, this is being driven by this new subvariant that has come out of uh, Omicron and also especially the highly transmissible BA5 strain. So I discussed the concerning situation with Deputy Prime Minister Grant Robertson, who's just had COVID himself. So, of course, it's polite thing to do. Ask them, how, how are you feeling? Kia Nathan. Yeah, look, not too bad. I think like a, a lot of people, the first few days were, you know, weren't great. But, you know, right now I'm, I'm pretty much back to feeling good. I've got a little bit of congestion, as you might be able to hear in the voice. But other than that, I've served my time um, and I'm out the other side. But it is one of those things, isn't it, where it affects people very, very differently. 
Some people can just, you know, feel briefly unwell for a few hours. Others, you know, we know end up in hospital. So it's it's a tricky virus and the reason why we, we want everyone to be vaccinated and, and keep doing the right things with wearing masks and so on because it can be pretty nasty for some people. Yeah, well, I mean, it's it's hit team uh, first up, Boss Pip. She's gone down. Uh, Katrina, the boards, she's uh, our, our panel op. She's gone down too. So we're... You know, with you're holding fast, though, yeah. Nathan, aren't you? Yes, we are. We're holding. I'm touching four mica, and hopefully, I'm, I'm going to avoid it there for a little bit. I mean, that, you know, it's been going around us, but also uh, members of cabinet seem to be catching it as well. So, so Tim, what's got, you got your still masks in the offices and around the cabinet table and stuff. You look in Parliament. There's mask wearing um, pretty much everywhere. Individual offices as they do in most parts of, of the community make their own decisions about that. You know, people who are working every single day in close proximity to each other will make their own decisions. But we have mask wearing in, in most of our formal meetings, especially when there are people you know, who we don't regularly interact with. And I think in many ways, given the kind of things politicians do, the amount of time we spend travelling around, the different sorts of events we go to and people we meet, we are probably at a higher risk of exposure. And, you know, not only members of Cabinet have had it, the Leader of the Opposition has and many other parliamentarians. Are we at the start of a new Omicron wave? Because I know some experts are suggesting that. Or is it actually a, a new sort of COVID that's coming through? It's all variants of COVID and it's probably probably as out of my depth as it is yours, Nathan, to get into too much of that. But we are seeing new new strains of Omicron that are arriving. That means that they are very, very transmissible, but continue not to be as severe as those earlier variants, the Delta variant and, and the first COVID-19 variant that we all experienced or saw anyway. So yeah, it is, you know, it is certainly a mutating virus. That's what we'd expect. And in the end, all the basic things that we need to do are what will protect us against Against any variant. Lots of research going on to try to understand the variants and I know obviously you know the drug companies are now looking at further um, iterations of vaccines to try to get them to match variants but the virus keeps moving and so therefore the science has to keep moving as well. Your information you've been getting, I mean because I've seen in some cases they said we might be getting 20,000 cases a day soon, Is, are you hearing that as well or do you not get data like that? Certainly seen that modelling, and that that comes from some of the modellers that people have um, heard from a bit over the last couple of years. Certainly we're seeing an uptick in cases now, and, and we did expect this. We expected that in winter that this would occur. We're spending more time inside. We've obviously got a lot of other illnesses that are around as well with variants of the flu too. And so we had modelled that there would be an increase. In some ways, the exact number is less relevant than the number of people who it affects sufficiently that they end up in hospital. And that's always been the measure that we've taken once we made the decision that we'd got to a level of vaccination where we were comfortable that um, we could reduce some of the restrictions we'd previously had. So hospitalisations are up. They're currently still manageable, although our health system is definitely under pressure at the moment. But that's the metric we've been looking at in terms of the severity of the situation. People you know, are given a lot of advice and support now about what to do to look after themselves at home if they need further support to do that. Our social service agencies are there for them. But we're pretty focused on how the health system is coping and, and making sure that we monitor that. I know you guys have been firm, very firm so far. I'm not going back to red alert level settings. <laughs> but is there, is there a tipping point where that happens? Well, as I say, um, the thing that we continually look at is the health system, our hospitals, how they're coping. And, you know, huge work going in right across the health service from all of the health professionals, and we're incredibly grateful for that. 
the timing obviously in winter means that it's not just COVID we have to look out for, it's the flu, other winter illnesses and making sure that we can manage that capacity. We also have to make sure that whatever interventions we do make are the ones that will make the difference in that regard. And really this is just an opportunity for me to make a plug for people to keep wearing their masks. Mm. You know, we've got environments where we require that of you, but also just consider it more generally in your life, particularly when you're around people who you don't know or you're not regularly around. Also make sure that people are vaccinated. And uh, we've just launched into the to the fourth dose for, for people aged over 50 and we've got target groups in there. If you're in that group, please get another vaccination. And if you are sick, do stay home. And, you know, do make sure that you abide by the public health rules that are put in place to help protect all of us. Those are the, you know, the hallmarks of the orange setting. They are the things we really got to get right. Some of the additional factors in red, we're look, taking another look at to see whether they actually would be things that would help um, limit that impact on the health system. But we've got a lot in the orange setting that we need to be doing anyway. Yeah, you mentioned the bit about if you're sick, please stay home. Agree with that fully. But I'm just wondering, are you starting to, or do you believe soon you're going to get pushback from employers who are saying, you know, like, well, that's all 10 sick days used up, so people need to come to work. Do you think there's a push for justifying more than 10 sick days? Well, obviously we increased it to 10 sick days, and I'm very pleased that the government did that in the face of quite a bit of opposition. We haven't got any work underway to revisit increasing it further. What I would say is that most employers tend to work pretty collaboratively and cooperatively with their workforce, understand the importance of their workforce staying healthy. We also do have the leave support scheme that still exists, and that's a scheme that can provide support to employers if workers do need to take days off as a result of COVID. That scheme you know, is continuing to roll out, I think, between 20 and $30 million a week. So that's you know, still a significant scheme for people to be able to use employers if they really are finding it hard to deal with the absences of their staff. I know that, um, so schools, I know that we had an article uh, the other day, we had an interview with uh, the principal of Carmel College on the North Shore and they've decided to work from home this week and that one really took off. I know that some of the other schools that are around have been doing hybrid learning. They're just about to go on holiday there for two weeks. Do you think it's good that schools should perhaps try and consider work from home for that first week back just as enough of a circuit breaker at this time? Schools will make their own decisions about that. And, you know, I've seen obviously the stories that you ran about schools that have gone online. I know others who've rostered off particular classes. It's mostly to do with the illnesses of staff and whether or not they've got enough staff to cover. And so that's the judgment that will be made. I think everyone will be looking forward to the holidays. It is a circuit breaker in itself. And obviously, you know, flu has been a big factor here, not only COVID. Um, There is some evidence that the flu might have peaked by the time we get through the school holidays, um, but obviously each school will monitor that. And I think they've got to make their decisions on the availability of staff and the well-being of staff and pupils. Other schools have, have gone through this dealt with it, haven't been impacted so much and have been able to keep face-to-face learning for everyone. Schools are in the best place to make that judgment about themselves. And finally, just with your Minister of Sport hat, I need to ask some advice. What is the tastiest hat? Because I have to eat one uh, because Scott Barrett was awesome on the blind side for the... (laughs) I think it probably should be coloured in Crusaders colours, perhaps (laughs) made out of some kind of red and black marzipan or maybe yellow and black (laughs) given given his Taranaki roots. Yeah, he did play well, didn't he? I think it was a it was a horses for courses selection for the game that plan that they wanted to play, but yeah, I thought he was outstanding. I tell you who I also thought was outstanding. I didn't think got the reps he should have was Quintupaia in the midfield. I reckon he he 
he really stepped up in that game. Yeah. I was very impressed by by him. But yeah, now good start to the season. We'll see what it's like under the roof at Forsyth Bar. That's the Deputy Prime Minister Grant Robertson rounding out this morning's first up. So finally this morning, some of your feedback. David wrote in um, about our interview there about abortion. What occurs, I propose, any woman's womb is absolutely her own business. God botherers and slash or politicos have no rights to interfere or impose any of their moral judgments in such personal circumstances. Thank you very much, David. You can always get hold of us anytime you like. Um, you can use Twitter at First Up RNZ. Um, remember, you can listen to First Up anytime at your convenience by downloading First Up the podcast. Uh, Morning Report is next with Susie and Corin, but from all of us here at First Up, I hope you have a wonderful day and we'll be back in your ears. Ah, Popo.